Well, with the Lord's help and strength tonight, I intend to continue in this short two-part series on the subject of evangelism. This will really be a Bible study in John chapter 4. We could turn to so many verses, but I wish to limit ourselves to what has been called the testimony of the Lord and his teaching exclusively in this chapter about evangelism. 42 verses are given up to what seems, but it's not, a chance encounter between the Lord Jesus and a woman who we don't even know her name. 42 verses devoted to this encounter. Well, we sometimes look at this as a gospel message of how the Lord opened this woman's heart and showed her who had so limited understanding the way of salvation, but tonight we will look at it to consider a right method for evangelism. We've thought of a mandate, a biblical mandate, which is so clear, and I will touch shortly upon a motive. We need a motive because our hearts so often grow cold, and we find it tough going, and we need to have renewed motivation for this most important task. So evangelism. This is the living, and I emphasize that, the living and the sharing and the proclaiming of the good news of the Lord Jesus Christ to a very needy world. And what a needy world it is. The world and this town need the gospel. Christ is the only answer. Conversion makes all the difference. Politics, governments, they cannot solve the problem of the human heart. Only the way of salvation can. And so we want to live lives which can be read and learned of all. We want our lives and our lips as a church and as individuals to commend the gospel. We want to be that forest of lights that can be set on a hill, not just one candle, but many, so that the hill is ablaze and that people come to hear the way of salvation. We cannot save one soul. We cannot move one soul. Indeed, we have almost no part to play, but we do have a part to play in the sovereignty of God to point to Christ. That's all we do. We point, we signpost to the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's the work of the Holy Spirit to use our means as instruments and to apply our lives and our lips to those round about us. Well, what about a motive before we turn to John 4? Well, I can't think of any better motive than this. And this is the highest of all motives. How much did Christ love his blood-bought children? How much did he love you and me? He loved us with an unfathomable, immeasurable love, unquantifiable, that he gave his life for us. What does the Lord call us to do? To give our lives sacrificially back to him in some tiny, minuscule way 
How did he love us? He endured the cross, despising the shame. And yes, there will now and again, not often, but now and again, there will be a little shame that we have to despise and scorn, but nothing like our dear Saviour. If ever you feel your heart grow cold when you're teaching Sunday school, and I include that within evangelism, that's part of our corporate work, well, just think, how did Christ love me? What love did he show for me? And then we could possibly say that when we're involved in this work of evangelism and a motive for us is that as we engage, as we make very small sacrifices, as we dedicate ourselves to this work, we will grow in grace because we will need to. Because we'll need to live by faith and not by sight. We'll quickly learn of the setbacks and the challenges and this will strengthen our faith, make us ever more dependent upon the Saviour. Thirdly, just by way of introduction for motive, when we pray the Lord's Prayer, Our Father who art in heaven, we say three words, don't we? Thy kingdom come. How can we say those words and truly mean them if we're then going to sit back and watch? Should we not be involved in pursuing the kingdom of God coming on earth? Those words literally mean, it can mean, it does, a dual meaning, God's kingdom, i.e. the Lord to come again, but it also means that God's kingdom would come on earth, uh, within people's hearts and within nations. Thy kingdom come. Let's pray that and mean it, and let's pray it and use our lives. Well, what of the challenges? We've thought then of the mandate. We've thought of a brief motive. But what are the challenges? Well, there will be many. There'll be many challenges, whether it's children or adults that we're gathering, teaching, collecting, praying for, caring. There will be many pitfalls and many challenges. Just think of children's work today, the need for safeguarding. One slip, one foolish comment, one slip of information one child that's not looked after well. It could damage the work, prevent the gospel from going far and wide. What about with adults? If one of us was to fall morally, what damage would that bring to our witness? Oh, there's so many pitfalls and challenges and the enemy, our great enemy, will do all he can to prevent, to disappoint to undermine, to discourage this activity and our labours for the Lord. Well, we turn to the example of the Lord Jesus Christ. As I say, we could turn to many texts, but please turn to John and chapter 4. We know that the Gospel of John is what we could call the teaching gospel. It's the gospel that focuses much upon the person of Christ And it's the gospel which is about the how-to and the theology. The other gospels, major, they all overlap. 
but they major upon the authority of Christ, his calling, his lineage, his power, his authenticity. But John's gospel is really a gospel that teaches us how to live the Christian life and how we can have that vital living relationship with the Lord Jesus. And John 4 is really exceptional. This woman that we don't even know the name of, and yet 42 verses devoted to this narrative, this conversation, and it must be for a reason. It's designed to give us a method. I use the word method, not technique. I don't like that term when it comes to evangelism. A technique sounds very man-made. The method that God lays down is for us to be a way to think. We're not to have a rigid method. Oh, I gave them the gospel. No, we listen more than we speak very often. And we listen and look for needs and opportunities. And therefore it's a method. And we see that here in this chapter. So I'm going to make a number of points. We won't go, go verse by verse but I want to draw this out. We're going to look at Christ. How does he engage with this woman? Well, before we come to the points, look at verse 4. This was preordained. This was planned. This is a text that preachers love to preach on. Verse 4 of chapter 4. He must needs go through Samaria. This woman was in his heart. He knew where she would be. He knew where he would sit in order to meet her. He had a specific reason to go to a Gentile territory. We can call them Gentiles. And he was going to meet this woman. It was a divine appointment, planned of God. And every act of witness, every child that we speak to, or perhaps more their parents on the door, that's a divine appointment. That's God's plan. We can't engineer that. That comes through prayer, through looking, through searching. And that's what the Lord Jesus is doing. He must needs go through Samaria. He had other plans, but he comes to this desert area spiritually just to reach this one woman. The gospel's personal. It deals with individuals. Well, the first thing I want to draw your attention to is there in verse 7. We notice, and this is the beginning of evangelism, whenever we desire to reach somebody, yes, we can and we should do good works, kindnesses, good deeds, not for salvation but to commend the gospel. But we first notice that all evangelism will, sooner or later, be a conversation. Verse 7, There cometh a woman of Samaria to draw water. Jesus said unto her. He starts the conversation. He sees the lady. He is sat down on the well, waiting for her. He knows she's going to come. And he has a plan in his heart to speak to this woman, of course. He knows all about her. That's obvious from the passage. We don't know all about the people we're going to speak to, but we try to move towards a conversation. If you have a neighbour, you can't witness to them without speaking to them. At some stage 
in a very natural and unforced way. We must emphasize that. It mustn't be forced. We start a conversation. Look at how Christ does it. Jesus said unto her, Give me to drink. Often it will be offering to do something for somebody. Can I help you with your shopping? Can I help you across the road? Can I help you with that buggy as you get across the pavement or something like that? In this case, Christ says, Oh, would you give me to drink? And there's a reason for that. Because he was immediately making this woman realize he was a Jew. She would have heard by his accent. And that because she was a woman, he would not normally speak across the genders. That was not common in those days. So the first point is this. We aim for a natural, unforced conversation. Give me to drink. What a simple start. There's nothing very spiritual. He will turn it into an application that comes from water and a drink. But I think his main purpose is just to start a dialogue. It doesn't really matter where we start. We just have to find common ground, something that puts us on the same level, that doesn't put us above. In fact, he was making himself endeared to the woman because she was doing something for him. So a conversation. He sits on the well, and as it's been said, knowing full well what this woman's need was. And he would meet her, but he doesn't jump straight in. Sometimes we meet people and they just want to go straight for the jugular. That never works. You can't have a meaningful conversation in two minutes. This has got to be thought through. We've got to find a way. Well, secondly, and there's much made of this in verse 9. Then saith the woman of Samaria unto him, How is it that thou, being a Jew, why are you talking to me? We're enemies. We belong to a different race. You and I, we come from two groups that hate each other. Why are you speaking to me? Well, that's the first point to notice. They were of a different race, literally, and there was antagonism between them. Secondly, as she notes, he is a teacher. And teachers, rabbis, do not speak to women. That was just a no-no. A social norm was men spoke to men, women spoke to women. Now, he wasn't being unwise. This was out in the open doors, the open air. He wasn't doing anything foolish. Of course not. We must be careful about evangelism between men and women, and particularly men and younger women, that needs to be greatly, be very careful over. But in the open air, where it's seen and it's transparent, he speaks to this woman. So the second point here in verse 9 is he overcomes two significant cultural and social barriers. And that's a great problem to us. We very often speak to people like us, P-L-U. Isn't that right? We somebody see somebody walk down the street, and we do this on the bookstall. I do it too. And we see somebody who's obviously of a different religion. Perhaps we can see by what they're wearing, 
and we think, oh no, we're not really sent to speak to people like that. No, Christ has the opposite. A lady and for that a Samaritan. And he overcomes those cultural barriers. And we must do that. You look at Bedford today. There's, if we can define what we are, because we're many different types tonight and that's good. There's not that many people like you or me. And so we must speak to all kinds, all sorts of people. We don't want a church that's just of one class or race. We want people who the Lord wants, not who we want, who the Lord calls. So cultural barriers must be ignored. That's the second point. Thirdly, Jesus answered and said unto her. Well, this is an obvious point. But very often the best form of evangelism is one-on-one. Try not to get into a crowd. That rarely is helpful. Sometimes in the open air, when you're preaching, you get three or four young people come up and they start asking a question or more likely they start making some cheap comment and you engage them. It generally doesn't work out well to talk to a group one-on-one. It's confidential, it's open, it's transparent, there's less embarrassment for the person that's speaking to you. And so we try one-on-one, and that's what the Lord did. He had the disciples go to the town. He knew that. He knew that he would be alone with this woman in the open air, but he would have a private conversation. And that was appropriate because her reputation was not good. We don't know exactly, but we know that she had five husbands. That's the official men. And there may have been others, and it may be that she was a disreputable woman in every possible sense. And so the Lord doesn't wish to embarrass her. Probably she was coming at the sixth hour midday because there would be no other women there. The women would come at six in the morning, usually, So she comes in the middle of the day, in the heat of the day, most unusual, possibly, probably because of her appalling reputation. But the Lord knows that. And he meets with her one on one. Well, verse 11 and 12, a fourth point. He's just started. He's introduced who he is by speaking and by his accent. He's asked a question and immediately... She is going to push back, and we expect that. Whenever you're involved in evangelism, it's very rare that you get full reception and people just soak up everything you say. Thank you for coming and telling me the gospel. That does not often happen. And what does she do? She starts to pose questions. There's a pushback. You've got nothing to draw with. You've got no water pot. This well is very deep. How are you going to get this living water, she says to him. She's pushing back. She's putting some barriers up. He could become distracted by this, but he chooses not to. She says, verse 12, Are you greater than Father Jacob? Another distraction. And she talks of the history 
of that well before the Samaritans and the Jews separated. Well, push back. That's to be expected. Don't be put off. The Lord Jesus wasn't. He sort of rides over it. He just doesn't answer the question quite. The question that's posed about him being a Jew. And he doesn't get drawn into the issue of whether he's got a water pot or not. He's going to elevate the conversation. And that's a good approach when you have pushback. Fifthly, let's look here. What's he going to talk about? This is where we struggle, isn't it? We've made a start. We've got into a conversation. What am I going to say? What question am I going to pose? The mind goes blank. We think it doesn't often because the Lord helps. How often? The Holy Spirit gives us the words just at that time. So what should we speak about? Well, let's look at verse 13. Let's take our pattern of the Lord. Jesus answered and said unto her, Whosoever drinketh of this water shall thirst again. He's being provocative. He's making her think. He's making a challenge. Is he talking to me in a riddle? What's this about? That's what we do when we seek to witness. We're trying to make people think. Not think about physical things, but think about spiritual things. Look at verse 16. He tries a different approach. Notice he hasn't mentioned sin. And nowhere in this narrative does he condemn the woman. We never condemn people. If we find people that come from, as they call it today, a different sexual orientation, although that's not really the terminology we would use, we don't condemn. But look what Christ does to this woman. Go and call thy husband. Do you have a husband? He knew the answer. We won't know the answer. Do you have a husband? Do you have children? Go and call your husband. Go and call. He's asking a leading question. It's a sort of an open question to open a door and to see what the woman will say. It's a leading question. He knows that this is going to touch a little bit of a raw nerve. And he knows that this will be the means through which the truth can be applied. So the lesson for us is we need to have clear content. At some stage, there's two things that we try to bring into every conversation. We have to mention sin in some form. And we have to mention eternal life. Those are two pivotal elements of the gospel, but we don't need to go straight in. And we can perhaps talk about eternity. That's an easier subject to talk about. What happens when we die? Isn't death real? Have you had somebody near to you die recently? These sorts of questions. How did you feel about that? Do you fear death? These are questions that provoke a response. And then we can explain why people have a fear of death, perhaps. Why that's been put within us. We can state what we believe, or even better, we can say what the Bible says about eternal life. So look what he does. Verse 13, let's go back to that. He uses a very interesting argument. Whosoever drinks of this water shall thirst again. You won't be satisfied. 
with this well? You won't be, are you satisfied with your life? Well, I can tell you of something that will satisfy. And it's not in your hand or in that shop. He's deliberately speaking about the needs of the soul. And he's going to talk about a remedy that's permanent. This is temporary. What I'm going to speak about is permanent and eternal. He will also say that this is a gift, a gift that God only can give. And he turns the conversation from the physical to the spiritual. Well, ultimately, evangelism is about hearing the gospel. I want to come right down to verses 24 and 25. We're just skimming over the narrative. So the words are given here. God is a spirit. This is what he's saying. And they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. The woman saith to him, I know that Messiah is come, which is called Christ. When he is come, he will tell us all things and he's going to reveal who he is well we can't do that we don't really want to talk about ourselves much we might be some testimony but we want to speak about him christ speaks about himself who he is and we want to speak about christ as well but this is really about bringing people to hear the message somebody once said to me why do you invite people to a gospel service why do you invite children to a sunday school don't just give them the gospel and it's done you're over with it you've given them the gospel no the human heart is hard and the primary means is for us to hear the message again and again and again very few people are converted the first time they hear the message. He says later on, the dead shall hear the voice of the Son of God and live. And that's what we do. The children that come to Sunday school spiritually are dead. We're born dead, born dead in trespasses and sins. And we need to hear the voice of the Son of God so that we can live. So that's our aim. We want people to understand the gospel, but we also want to bring them to hear the gospel. And we want the children to come and hear the gospel regularly, week after week. So ultimately, our campaign is for not for them to hear us. Oh, no, we can't bring a soul to the Saviour. But we can bring them to hear the voice of the Son of God through the scriptures that we give them through the preaching of the word of God. The dead shall hear the voice of the Son of God and live. Well, a seventh point, just very quickly. And this, we can't, don't even need to turn to the verses because we've read them. Avoid eating red herrings. What do I mean by that? Well, the Lord Jesus avoids eating a number of red herrings. The fact that he's a Jew, she's a Samaritan. The fact she's a woman, he's a man. And then there's another one here. Where should we worship? Is place important to our worship? Is Jerusalem 
what it's all about, says the woman. And you know, he doesn't really answer these red herrings that are posed. And you know, so often people can pose red herrings. What about revelation? What does that black horse mean? What about the woman with... No, those are not really profitable. They very rarely lead a person further in their search for the kingdom of heaven. They're a distraction. They're a red herring. They're a cul-de-sac that it's very difficult to get out of once you've gone down it. We need to avoid them. But then another point, verses 37 and 38. We didn't read this, but this is when the Lord Jesus is now talking to the disciples, which starts in verse 31. And he reminds them in this whole chapter of evangelism, he reminds them that the process of a sinner coming to Christ can often be a long one. And there's a number of steps. It's like a harvest. It's like a farmer. You sow. You prepare the ground. You water the seed. You have to sometimes go over the ground to make sure that the seed is growing. And he says there will be a sovereign work done in effect. And you don't know which part you are in that chain. The chain might be quite long. You're just one little link or half a link in the chain. He says, both he that soweth and he that reapeth may rejoice together. There will be rejoicing in heaven over one sinner that repents. And we may just be a tiny link in the chain. We're just preparing the seed to be sown. You remember that evening where we prepared the Bibles to go out to the schools? Well, that verse speaks to this. We're involved. It might just be in prayer. Some of our friends listening tonight at home, I can't be involved in evangelism. Look at my knee. Look at my legs. But you can pray. And we need many people praying. We need people preparing the scriptures to go out and tracts and other things. We are sowers and we're reapers. Some will be better at sowing. Some will be better at reaping. All are to be involved in praying. And then I want to speak about what we should say. Should we use personal testimony? Well, that can be good. It's very effective. Often in speaking to Jehovah's Witnesses, I've found that if you can challenge them about the fact that you know the Lord, you know that your sins are forgiven, you have peace in your own heart, that can be one of the most effective ways of reaching those who seem to just be blind and dead to the gospel. But mostly we are seeking to turn to the words of the Lord Jesus. It says here, In verse 32, but he said unto them, I have meat to eat that ye know not of. Therefore said the disciples one to another, Hath any man brought him aught to eat? Jesus saith unto him, My meat is to do the will of him that sent me and to finish his work. He goes on in verse 35, There are yet four months And then cometh the harvest. Behold, I say unto you, 
Lift up your eyes, look on the fields, for they are white or ready to the harvest. We need to use the words of the Lord Jesus more than our own words. There should be possibly a dozen scriptures that we're going to use in our personal witness. We need to know the references. We need to quote them with authority, with accuracy, so that they are heard. The Lord Jesus is going to urge through these verses that this is an urgent task. He says, the fields are white. It was mentioned in our hymn. They are white. Don't say the harvest is four months off. The harvest is now, he says. Look, look around you. See the needs. See the people dying in their sins. See the people walking with blinkers on their eyes. Look on the fields, for they are white. They are ready for the harvest. Don't put this task off, he's saying to them. Don't saying we can wait. We can do something else. We need to take the words of Christ, personal testimony to some extent, and we need to go. And we need to go into the fields. For the Lord Jesus himself says, even 2,000 years ago, the fields are white. They're ready. The world needs the gospel. The world needs to hear of a saviour. He says, he that reapeth receiveth wages and gathereth fruit unto eternal life. He's implying, we don't take this too far, he's implying there is reward for those who take the gospel, for those who gather the fruit. The Lord will give a special blessing. A special blessing perhaps because we see those who've been saved through our witness through our testimony. A special blessing perhaps because we realise what love the Lord has had to so many people that we met, that we knew, that we had a tiny part in the chain of their salvation. These are urgent. We speak verse 42. Perhaps this is the verse to finish with. He said to the woman, she has now believed She's dropped her water pot next to the well. She's got something more urgent. And she goes into the city, into the town, and she starts telling the people that she meets. And many believe. But look at verse 41. And many more believed because of hearing <coughs> his own word. Yes, this woman had a witness. But Christ's words, the preaching of the gospel, had even greater effect than the testimony of this one woman, even though her testimony was sincere. Verse 42, he said unto the woman, Now we believe, not because of thy saying, not because of thy saying, for we have heard him ourselves, they say. And know that this is indeed the Christ, the Saviour of the world. What an extraordinary account through one woman. Many are converted. But through the preaching of the gospel by Christ, 
even more are converted. This is an urgent work. This is a work that we need the Lord's help. How are we? How are we qualified for such a work as this? When we consider our lives, our lack of knowledge, lack of insight, our lack of consistency, and yet the Lord has called us to go as this woman is. Straight away she goes into the town and tells all that she meets. Verse 39, just go back to that. Many of the Samaritans, they believed on him for the saying of the woman which testified, he told me all that I ever did. She believed. She put her faith in Christ. Her conversion is rapid and she tells others what a work this is. What a method this is unfolded for us to go into all the world and to tell whoever will listen of the love of the Saviour and speak to them of all that he has done for us, for our souls. Let's close tonight singing our third hymn number 400.